Translation, a weekly-ish exploration of one fellow's translation of the Christian scriptures, one big idea and story at a time. I'm Brandon Rhodes, and across the internet for me is the translator himself, Brandon Johnson. Hey, Brandon. Hey, Brandon. I am excited to see you this cold, cold morning. <laughs> yeah. We are, uh, we are recording... Uh, a couple days after the big snowstorm that hit Portland, uh, how many? Mm-hmm. What's what's it still looking like outside for you? We've got probably a good like six inches left out of the original eight or nine. Uh huh. Uh huh. Started melting away, but yeah. Wow, that's absolutely wild. Yeah, there's a little bit up still on the hills, just over the Coburg Hills overlooking where I'm at. Um, you know, a surprise layering over the familiar and the true is kind of the themes we're going to be talking about today. Um, we are, I want to circle back to where we began. So in the introduction to the fourth gospel, uh, we made a quick acknowledgement about authorship. We talked about uh, how we are skeptical uh, of John of Zebedee, the traditionally ascribed scribe here, uh, as being the actual author. Uh, we have another candidate in mind. So it's not just this, this is going to be one of those, um, oh, how to say this. It's a different angle on discovering liberation and healing in the text than we've done so far. These are things that mm-hmm. we've inc- that you've included in your translation that are um, consequential and do get us to liberation and healing, but it wasn't born out of your, your, your existing commitments around, you know, addressing religious technical language or shame language or disembodiment language. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's not a change in how I've gone from the Greek to the English. It's, really looking at the history of how the texts have been passed down and the significance of what happens when we look closely at that. Right, right. So let's get into this. Uh, the There's a couple places that we find in the original papyri uh, of the fourth gospel where we can guess who the beloved disciple is supposed to be uh, and or where tradition has pointed to. Two places. One, at the start of the papyrus, it says the gospel, you know, the good news of according to John. Uh, that's just, you know, kind of the, the title card. and right. Which wouldn't have been on the original document, by the way, that would have been added later. Correct. Yeah, that was an inference or a yeah. conclusion that somebody else made. And we also can't assume it's the same John, because even in the first chapter, uh, the opening story of uh, uh, this fourth gospel, it's like, not this John, that John. It's making it clear something here. Like, there's a few different Johns. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Woman, you have multiple. Okay. Uh, Johns. Um, yeah. I've had a lot of coffee. I'm sorry, guys. My jokes are going to be a bit swing this. Um the main place to look in the literature is going to be these stories of this fellow who shows up in John 13 as 
the beloved disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And then that character shows up a few other times in the gospel, including like the final story. So what I wanted to do was just review those, and then we'll come back to another verse that I think is the uh, giveaway about who the beloved disciple and therefore the primary author of this gospel actually is. And then we'll cycle back through them and see if how well it clicks with the all the beloved disciple texts. Sound good to you? Sounds great. Awesome. Okay, we're going to put this up on the screen. We'll also have um, citations in the episode liner notes uh, about these verses so you can find them yourself if you are listening instead of watching. So we're looking at uh, chapter 13, verse 23 through 27 here. Um, one of his students reclining at the table was at Jesus's chest, the one Jesus loved. Simeon Peter nodded to this one to ask whom he could be talking about. So leaning back against Jesus's chest, they said to him, Lord, who is it? It's the one I will give a piece of bread after I dip it, Jesus answered. Then he got a piece of bread and after dipping it, gave it to Judas, son of Simeon of Kerioth. Then after the piece of bread, the adversary went into him. So here we are. This is the last supper, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And we've got this character introduced as like this guy who's like, so close to Jesus, he's actually leaning against his chest. There's this tenderness and it that we see in like on stage. And then the author goes ahead and says, this is the one who Jesus loved. So then later on, we've got, um, oh, actually your list of uh, passages doesn't include, does it? The, um, there's the story. Uh, the gate. The gate. Yeah. The, I put it at the end since it doesn't actually say beloved disciple on it. Oh, okay. It just says good. Okay. another disciple. Great. Um, yeah. So then we're uh, at the crucifixion, 1925. Standing near Jesus' cross were his mother, his mother's sister, Miriam, the wife of Clopas, and Miriam the tower. Get to that later. When Jesus saw his mother and the student whom he loved standing there, he said to his mother, ma'am, here is your son. Next, he said to the student, here is your mother. And from that time on, the student received her into their own family. So we've got the beloved disciple with Mary, the mother of God, her sister, and Mary, the tower, uh, more commonly known as Mary Magdalene. And the only other possibly male character is the beloved disciple right there. Uh, th that's otherwise it's all, all the other disciples have abandoned Jesus, except basically family, Mary Magdalene and this guy. Mm -hmm. And we are assuming that that tradition says it's John who is what a fisherman from yep. Galilee. Right. Um, that detail uh, is significant. It is. Yeah. Yeah. So as we hear these stories, we need to be assuming, be remembering the, the, the popular answer to who wrote John is John of Zebedee, a fisherman from Galilee up in the North, not near Jerusalem, not theologically formally educated. Mm -hmm. So take that for what it is. 
and then now we're into the resurrection stories. On the first day of the week, Miriam, the tower came to the tomb before dawn while it was still dark. Let's see. Um, and she saw the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran yeah, and she nice. went to Simeon Peter and the other student whom Jesus was close with. Which translated that way because it's a different Greek word that's sometimes translated as love, agape okay. versus philia. Oh. This is the philia here. Okay. Yeah. They took the Lord from the tomb, she told them, and I don't know where they put him. So Peter and the other students went out and began to go to the tomb. The two were began to run together, but the other student ran faster than Peter had and arrived at the tomb first. Bending down, they saw the strips of linen lying there. However, they didn't go inside. Then Simeon Peter, who was behind them, arrived and went inside the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there and the face cloth, which had been over Jesus' head, was not lying with the strips of linen, but was rolled up on a spot by itself and said, Jesus set the bed. That's so great. Um, <laughs> he made his bed. Uh, so then the other students who arrived first also went inside the tomb and saw it, and they trusted. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Uh uh, next, the, the final story in um, the scripture. No, the final two here. Um, cast your net on, in verse chapter 21, verse 6. Cast your net on the right side of the boat, he said to them, and you'll find some. Uh, so they cast it, and they weren't strong enough to pull it in anymore from how many fish there were. So the student whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. <laughs> when, Sim when Simeon Peter heard, it's the Lord. He tied his clothing around himself because he was naked and threw himself into the lake. Uh, now we're up to uh, 21, verse 20. Final scene. Turning around, Peter saw the student whom Jesus... They're, they're all walking down the beach here. Turning around, Peter saw the student whom Jesus loved following. This is the one who leaned back against his chest at the dinner and said, Lord, who is the one who's handing you over? Thanks for the aside, John. Uh, <laughs> at seeing them... Peter said to Jesus, Lord, what about them? If I want them to stay present until I come, Jesus said, what is it to you? Follow me. So discussion of the idea went out to the family that the student would not die. However, Jesus didn't say that they wouldn't die. Instead, he said, if I want them to stay present until I come, what is it to you? There's already miscommunication. <laughs> so much like so much ink just spent on like, okay, shit's confusing. We're going to keep clarifying things. Yes. And then there it is. This is the one tie here. Here it is tying that fella to being the author. This is the student who is telling you about these things and writing these things. And we have seen that their report is trustworthy. There's also kind of an implication that there is a additional party helping compose this document there. Um, mm -hmm. So then, yeah, uh, we'll rewind the tape in the story. 1815. Uh Simeon Peter and another student were following Jesus. That student was someone who knew the high priest, and he went in with Jesus to the high priest's courtyard. Peter had stood outside near the entrance. Then the other students who knew the high priest came out and spoke to the girl watching the entrance and brought Peter inside. Then the girl who was watching the door said to Peter, aren't you also one of this person's students? So they're recognized at the temple by the temp by like high priest's book, right? Mm-hmm strange detail someone the high priest like knew who they were like potentially even had spoken with like yeah yeah do we think the high priest is gonna know this fisherman 
from a couple hundred miles north who's been rambling around the Holy Land with this like upstart revolutionary preacher guy. Doesn't strike Seems me as unlikely. plausible. Seems yeah. unlikely. Uh, <laughs> quite unlikely. Also, why are they like wondering if the beloved disciple is going to live forever or <laughs> like what's going on there? Yeah. Um, well, wait a minute. Let's see if there is there anybody else in this literature that is described specifically as someone whom Jesus loved. Worthwhile question. Brandon, bring it up on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> We are just a couple chapters earlier than that introduction. Uh, the Beloved Disciples introduced in 1323. But there's a story. The, the previous really narrative unit begins in chapter 11, verse 1. There was someone who was weak with illness, Eliezer from Bethany. That's normally Lazarus. Which was yes, the Eliezer is the more Hebraic version of the name. Lazarus is the like Latin, Latinized version of it. Yeah. So there was someone who was weak with illness, Eliezer from Bethany, which was the village where Miriam, his sister, Miriam, was from. Miriam was the one who anointed the Lord with perfumed oil and wiped his feet with her hair, and whose brother Eliezer was weak with illness. Again, thank you for the clarifications. So <laughs> Miriam sent a message for Jesus. Lord, the one you care about is weak with illness. Now, typical translations use that as love. You've made some right. translation distinctions between different words that are often just flattened into love. Right. So there it is. The first, there, the beloved disciple uh, is introduced as reclining against Jesus's chest and comma, the one Jesus loved. And there it is, Mary, the tower, Mary Magdalene saying, the one you love is weak with illness. When he heard it, Jesus replied to her, this illness isn't the result, isn't resulting in death, but for the sake of the praise for God, with the result that the son of God would be praised because of it. Uh, Jesus loved Eliezer and his sister. So after he heard he was weak with illness, he stayed where he was for two more days. Now, uh, I think I can just stop reading the story there. We get the picture. You know the story, right? Jesus goes to the tomb. Jesus wept and um, calls Eliezer forth, comes back out um, after being dead for a couple days. Is it a couple days? Um, and uh, then four days. Oh, yeah. And, and then, uh, Word gets out that his bestie is back, and it even goes to the high priests. Or the so in verse was it in chapter twelve, the next chapter, mm -hmm. Eliezer continues to be named as Eliezer, but then there's this line where the high priests resolve to kill Eliezer to put an end to all this Jesus nonsense. And then he's mentioned a single more time, a couple verses later, 
um, to provide some context. Like all the people who were excited about Jesus raising Eliezer from the dead, and on it goes. But then Eliezer right. disappears from the story under that name. The next scene is <laughs> they go into town, the um, Palm Sunday kind of thing, and then we've got the story in of the Last Supper, and there's the beloved disciple. That seems like a pretty clear literary clue, doesn't it? It seems like it, yeah. <laughs> and not only that this person lives just like three miles outside of Jerusalem and would makes it likely that the high priest would, would possibly know him, especially after all the hubbub about him being raised from the dead. Right, yeah, like, El what if Eliezer was, yeah, a, a known character, not just to the high priest, but like known in those circles. If Eliezer happened to have been a Sadducee, a temple worker and scribe, someone who was theologically or minister liturgically trained, that would explain the theological depth and imagination that distinguishes um, the fourth gospel. It's like a totally different voice. The other gospels are written by people much more in contact with Pharisee, Pharisee theology. Um, and I don't say that as a pejorative. It's just kind of where they were. We're getting, if, if Eliezer worked at the temple, that's the, that's, that, that is pure speculation, but it makes sense of the evidence you've got in the story. Mm -hmm. Then no wonder he's recognized at the gate. So let's go back through those passages uh, and see. The recognize? There's that one, the being recognized yeah. at the gate. There's that one. And then we've got uh, uh, he's there at the cross mm -hmm. uh, with the Marys. And then we've got the story uh, of uh, Easter morning and Mary Magdalene being his sister. <laughs> Which we haven't addressed yet. We haven't addressed but, yet. We'll get yeah, there. Yeah. We'll get there. Goes back to the apostles who aren't the apostles yet. They're just sad pals. You see. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> and uh and then Simon Peter and the beloved disciple Lazarus run to the tomb. The beloved disciple gets there first. It says he ran faster. It could have also been he knew the way there for faster because he was familiar with the area. And then he gets to the tomb, and it makes the point of saying the beloved disciple stands there and looks in but doesn't go in. Mm -hmm. but, but then Simon Peter goes in. Yeah. So if he had had some personal trauma with the tomb... Like, yeah, there might be a reason to hesitate. His system is locking up because he's been locked up in that kind of place before. He's been in a sepulcher mm -hmm. as a corpse. And he waits for Peter to go in. Peter's um, earnestness that is sometimes teased elsewhere. <laughs> Um, ends up being a gift and a mercy because he goes right on in there. He's like, where the hell's my buddy's body? 
and mm -hmm. then that empowers and helps Lazarus, Eliezer, the beloved disciple, to walk in and see the one he loved not being there. Mm -hmm. Now you get to the end of the book, the story on the beach. You get to the story on the beach, and there's and Peter, it's Peter, the beloved disciple in Jesus. Um, and then there's like this like argument over like, is the beloved disciple gonna be around forever now? Like, is he resurrected in the same way? And Jesus is like, what the hell are you talking about? Doesn't matter. Like, stick to what matters here. Um, but that whole argument would only matter if like Lazarus had been raised from the, if the beloved disciple had been raised from the dead, who Eliezer <laughs> qualifies. He checks that box. There's nobody else in this in this literature who fits that bill to make sense of that exchange like Eliezer. it's astonishing and so you read back through the themes in this gospel through the lens of what if this was lazarus of bethany mm -hmm. not john of zebedee yeah the evidence seems pretty pretty convincing but so far it's kind of like well that's really nerdy and cool so what yeah yeah so what like i can see now why there's such an a focus on the themes of resurrection in this gospel and i can see how the the particularities of the theology maybe because he's more of a temple liturgical world than the kind of grassroots world of the pharisees mm -hmm. i can see all of that but here's the twist in this episode. So the big twist, the big twist here, the consequence, the implications of La it being Lazarus and not just uh, just John. John would have been cool. It would have been a trip if this was written by a fisherman. Um, but there's something pretty cool around the corner. Uh, and to do that, we need to step back into Lazarus's home life. Could you uh, tell us more? Thank you. I'll take you there. So if you notice when we were reading from this chapter, chapter 11 before, started talking about Miriam, his sister Miriam, and all that. Those of you familiar with the passage might have been going, wait, what do you mean? Isn't it Miriam and her sister Martha? Or Martha and her sister Miriam. I'm not sure which which order it's normally in. Mary and uh, then Martha is the usual. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there has been some new. How do you put it? Is it is it archaeological, uh, textual, scholarly? Some new, some new scholarly work that has surfaced some surprising information and, um, Dan. Butler Bass has a really powerful recording of, of a talk she gave about this, um, which is where I first heard about it. I probably you too, Brandon, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. so the work of Elizabeth Schrader is what she's talking about. Um, 
who was looking at the oldest, most reliable manuscript, the actual like scan of the handwritten manuscript. Papyri 66. Yep. Uh, and noticed by looking really closely that somebody else after the original scribe had written it had come in and written over the original writing and changed things changed the word his to her changed the letters to make it instead of say miriam or in the greek maria uh to say martha changed the i to a th which is just one letter in the greek um which completely added a new character in this and so we're, we're the the thought is that whoever did that had mary and martha from luke in mind mm -hmm. which it's not named where they live and in that part of Luke, Jesus and the disciples are in Galilee, not in Bethany, which is near Jerusalem, 200 miles south, right? So, yeah. so Mary and Martha still exist in the story of Jesus. They just don't live in Bethany, and they're not related to Eliezer, to Lazarus. Yeah, it's an incredible story of two women with incredibly common names. Right. Yep. And so what the original manuscript said here was this, where Miriam, his sister Miriam, because it had just referred to Eliezer, and there's a lot of Miriams, so it's clarifying which Miriam are we talking about here, mm -hmm. was her own. And then it talks about later, Miriam was the one who anointed the Lord with perfumed oil, which is the story in the next chapter. Um, so Miriam sent a message to, to Jesus, Lord, the one you care about. Jesus replied to her, da, 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 da. Jesus loved Eliezer and his sister. So I have highlighted here all the places where changing it to Miriam instead of Martha makes a yeah. difference. Um, and there gets to be some, this paragraph here, it gets tricky because it seems like other people made adjustments at some point and maybe duplicated conversation to to make it work with another character in there. And yeah, it's it's hard to know what to do with all of it. But um, yeah, the fact that it's not in Galilee, it's Bethany here. And the fact that those things were very clearly changed. And this, this one woman discovered it, Elizabeth Schrader, but she wrote a paper and took it to Nestle Aland, which is, the committee who worldwide is like in charge of publishing and editing and, and the scholarship around the Greek text. Um, there are a bunch of old German white men with no interest in making radical changes. Um, and they, after looking at all the evidence she compiled, agreed. I, we think you're onto something. This, I think you're probably right. Um, so this is not just like fringe progressive BS. This is actual <laughs> real scholarship or looking or, at it. Or conspiratorial <laughs> speculation. Yeah, no, this is this is strong evidence that even the people with an interest in keeping the status quo intact have acknowledged seems right. 
Yeah, and uh, um, Tertullian, I believe, is the one that Diana Butler Bass mentions in her sermon as like yeah. you know, he's an early church father and theologian. Yeah, quite, from around two hundred CE. Yeah, 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 quite misogynistic. She says he's like maybe the most of the church fathers, uh, and when he cites this story, he only mentions a Mary. There's right. no Martha. He's the things that we think Martha is a, an imagined Martha is saying conventional mm -hmm. translations have as Martha saying, he says, Mary says it now. Was he mistaken? Right. Was he just like, you know, up late with a little extra wine while he wrote that or was that originally what it said? And then this one scribe, yeah. uh, either with the motivation of being as insidious as misogyny or as innocuous as trying to harmonize this mm -hmm. story with the story from uh, Luke 10, is it? Uh, of Something like that. Yeah, yep. uh, of Mary and Martha, the contemplative versus action kind of energy story. Um, somewhere between those two, whatever it was, a scribe definitely did this. Mm -hmm. And like all the gatekeepers are saying, oh shit, good call. <laughs> We've got to change this. Yeah. Yep. And so if we have, again, the, well, that's interesting. So what gets to be like, okay, so, so who is this Mary then? Who is this Miriam? And starts looking as you go through the rest of the book, most likely this is Mary Magdalene. Okay. Which also in that same talk by Dana Butler, she starts pointing out uh, Magdalene probably doesn't mean from Magdala, as is the traditional understanding, partly because the town of Magdala that they would be referring to didn't exist at that time. <laughs> <laughs> There's no record of a Magdala existing until later. Oh, um, yeah. But there is a word from Aramaic that would mean tower. Okay. So, and the line of thinking is, and you know, listen to Diana Butler Bass's talk on this and do some research. Like we we'll can't go into it in, into yeah, yeah um, to get more and more in detail here. But basically, it seems like the early church had kind of a mom and dad right after after jesus passed on the torch we have jesus the rock upon whom i will build my church peter the rock or jesus yeah i mean jesus is a good cornerstone right peter and then being the patriarch of the faith and we have mary the tower as the matriarch of the faith mm. and these two people being the central figures that the church looked to to guide the church forward and the reason they speculate that of like why it's it part of it is like peter the rock mary the tower she seems to be mm -hmm. called mary the tower but also they are the two who give the christological confessions right yep you have that have peter and the synoptics do that and in john it's mary magdalene yeah, Peter so, says, you know, you are names Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. As the Christ. Yeah. 
What a revelation. Yes. And so, so for whatever, whether it was intentionally misogynistic to erase Mary, Miriam, the tower, or not, that was the effect of it. And so we have lost this woman who was the tower of the early church and had the effect of erasing the role and value of women in the church for the next 2000 years. Um, yeah, and then how that relates to Lazarus Eliezer being the author of this book is then if, if that's true, that means, you know, it wasn't Miriam writing it, but Eliezer knows Miriam is probably thinks very similarly to Miriam. We have, this is the closest we have to the thoughts of Mary in scripture. Mm -hmm. and, I mean, they and, lived together, which is a good example of someone answering, am I my brother's keeper? Yes, I am my sister's keeper. This is an adult woman who was unmarried and thriving as an adult because her brother loved her and shared life with her as an equal. In all of this. Thank you for that. It's instructive to contrast this way of constructing the early church and where did Mary Magdalene go with alternative ways that are out there. Um, there are really diverse and interesting and tantalizing clues across the centuries that Mary Magdalene was an important and broadly remembered, even revered character in the life of the early church who seemed to have a particular closeness to the Lord. Mm -hmm. So much so. I mean, Jesus even tells her, you will be remembered forever. <laughs> As long as my story is told, yours will be told too when she anoints his feet with oil, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's profound, the sense within the text as well as beyond that how well this character was known, but we don't know anything about what she thought or thought or um, believed, what her... What her what was her prayer energy like? We want to know about this woman. And so there's been a, uh, a pretty good-sized chunk of scholars who, for a variety of motives and intellectual journeys to get to there, basically say a lot of the New Testament is, um, was placed there by authoritarians who, in a, in a conspiratorial way, um, ranging from the early church was trying to sh silence women, which, yeah, there was a lot of misogyny in <laughs> as the church developed. For sure, you see it in the New Testament, and it escalates from there, um, mm -hmm. in spite of all the counter-misogyny stuff that's also both in the text and the tradition. Yeah, yeah. all so, of the evidence of the first couple of hundred years of the church suggests that women were thriving in leadership positions, probably much more than 50% of the church population. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. But yeah, it wasn't until Constantine era where the church started conforming more to the power structures 
of the Roman Empire and the assumptions of the world. Paterfamilias um, and all that, yeah. That, that that started shifting significantly. Yeah. So, you know, people have tried to reconstruct things to make sense of this, like the breadcrumbs of, or, or the, it's like seeing, feeling parts of the outline of Mary Magdalene's legacy. And so, um, um, alternative scriptures, the gospel of Mary Magdalene, uh, the gospel of, of Peter, um, the gospel of Thomas, these are held up as um, suppressed, truer, closer to Jesus texts. They're also typically quite Gnostic, which means, among other things, anti-Semitic and anti-body. <laughs> but they, had a, they, they were more gratuitously um, mystical according to certain schools of mysticism um, mm -hmm. and don't have as consistent misogynistic threads. So I can see how they tried to reconstruct an early Christianity or, and even sometimes it gets into the conspiracy land of Dan Brown, the Da Vinci code, like Jesus and Mary Magdalene absconded and had a kid. And it's like, I don't know, maybe they were lovers. I don't know or care that much, but um, you don't have to reconstruct such an, uh, elaborate conspiracy laden few centuries to find this Mary. If you want to find Mary um, and, and an explanation of how she was more or less deleted from the literature and stories, there's all the microaggression ways that people could do that. And one of them is changing the iota to the theta mm -hmm. from Maria to Martha mm -hmm. and aligning the pronouns accordingly. Right. And then a tradition that is going to err on the side of, well, yeah, ob clearly scholastically, this could be Mary the tower, but we're going to just keep calling her Mary Magdalene. <laughs> Once you right. start thinking of that as a title that has a certain rhetorical parallel to Peter the Rock, that complicates uh, Roman primacy. Mm -hmm. And uh, all kinds of things. <laughs> right. Yeah, it starts eating away at the justification for the power structures that have been in place. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So we don't need all the conspiracies to find a radical and um, femme-inclusive <laughs> way of holding the story. Mm -hmm. You don't need the conspiracies to find something close to the heart of Mary Magdalene, Mary the Tower, Miriam the Tower. She was the sister to the guy who wrote the fourth gospel and they lived together they weren't like neighbors they lived together right if you want to know mary magdalene's heart sure seems like they hung out together for quite a while sure seems like they were related in um spiritual ways mm -hmm. gosh what an incredible <laughs> anything you want to yeah. add there? I'm, I'm like, yeah, I just so I kind of want to like keep teasing out the the implications, but I think just 
Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's really just something that is an ongoing work. Like, so what, what are the implications as we read these stories with Miriam's Uh brother in mind as the one Jesus loved as the author of this book, if we keep reading these stories in with Mary, the tower in mind in this document, but also the other three gospels, like, what does that start to shift for us? Mm-hmm. Um, God, it's so good. Um, I'd be really curious as all of you watching and listening, um, savor these insights uh, as you reread the other gospels or this one. What shifts for you as you think of Lazarus being the core author, the Eliezer, excuse me, and that his sister was Mary Magdalene? Not Mary from Magdala, but Mary the Tower, one of the mothers and pillars of our faith. Mm-hmm. The apostle to the apostles. Yes. Yes. One of the first two people to declare Jesus as the Messiah. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you all for joining on this, uh, joining us on this journey, um, and absolute geekery. <laughs> the uh, easiest way to support Found in Translation is to leave us a rating or review on whatever app or website you are enjoying this on. It makes it easier for more people to find the show. That's extra, extra true apple podcasts it helps everybody especially us <laughs> and especially new listeners uh second best best way to support the show is to become a sponsor you can do that for just five dollars a month when you do that you get comment access on the translations google doc and the satisfaction of knowing that you are supporting exceptionally nerdy independent media you can find the link to join that community in the episode notes the music you're listening to is by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. Found in Translation was produced by Perry FM on unceded Chinook and Kalapuya land. Goodbye, Brandon. Bye, Brandon. Bye, everybody.